0: Galatians 6, verse 6. Paul says, "...one who is taught the Word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh Will from the flesh reap corruption, but to the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful and we acknowledge that Your hand does lead us. Lord, Your hand led each and every one of us here into this building today. Your hand has led us to this hour. Your hand has led us to this text. And Lord, I I pray Lord, you be in our time, the power of your Spirit. Lord, I'm but a clay vessel in your hand, and I pray you would do with me what you would be most pleasing to you in this hour. Pray your saints would be edified and helped. I pray sinners would be drawn to our most glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask it in His name and for His sake. Amen. Well, today we're going to talk about. Spiritual farming, and this will be a two, if not three-part message, and we'll see about that. See how it goes today. But today, I really want to try to focus our time on verses six and seven. Um, uh, my brother Brian Borgman, I've been I've been going through his series in Galatians. He he preaches on this verse alone, and he entitles the message. This is an awkward message. <laughs> and, and I laughed when I saw that title because I, I'm standing in the same awkward place. I, I, I could easily identify with what Brian means when he says that because it, it's a very awkward position to be in when you are telling other people, people who basically support you financially, <clears throat> that you must share all good things with Me. <clears throat> but that is what Paul is teaching here in verse 6. And so, yes, it is. Make it. It does make for a, an awkward and uncomfortable feeling on, on my part, and presents certainly a temptation just to want to kind of gloss over this verse and move on to verse seven. Um, however, regardless of how it feels, I'm committed to teaching the whole counsel of God, and and doing that means, you know, you got to handle certain texts that may make us feel uncomfortable at times, even subjects that could possibly be interpreted as as, as self serving. Serving my own interest. Well, I'm not going to devote the whole message to verse six, but but verse six is very much tied to verse seven and verse eight and verse nine and verse ten. There's a reason why these five verses end up in one paragraph, albeit our Bibles, our paragraphs in our Bibles, are constructs of our translators, the original language, the Greek language, when the Bible was written. Did not have paragraphs or paragraph marks. Those were added by uh, us later on, and that's why that's one of the reasons why I still prefer the King James in some ways. You won't find the King James splitting up Paul's letters into paragraphs. You won't. And just spend enough time studying Paul's letters, and uh, you'll see the wisdom in not doing so. <laughs> but contextually here, verse six. Is related to the, to the next four verses. However, I would also argue that it is still very much related to what Paul has just finished saying in verses two through five. And that's why you'll find translations like the NIV, they actually make verse six a part of verse one through five, that, par- that first paragraph of chapter six. Although I think they do so errantly, and you'll see why in a moment, but um, it seems to me. Verses 1-10 through should all be under one paragraph because everything stated in these 10 verses is related to one another. Paul is still addressing walking by the Spirit versus walking by the flesh. And he does so in the form of commandments starting in chapter 6. Commandments that express how a Spirit-led life looks. It looks like restoring troubled Christians in their sin. In the spirit of gentleness, verse one. It looks like bearing the burdens of other Christians, verse two, which of course flows from the humble disposition of of belonging to Christ Jesus in chapter five, verse twenty-four. Not the proud conceit of verse twenty-six or the, the kind of pride that's expressed in chapter six, verse three, thinking yourself to be something when you're nothing. We looked at that verse and and, and briefly uh, verse four and five last time, where Paul is, is addressing the Judaizers, uh, self boasting in their law keeping. Moreover, they're, they're, they're proselytizing of others whom they had successfully convinced to be circumcised, presumably making them super spiritual like themselves. And we see this prideful mindset. We I think we looked at that verse there down in verse twelve and thirteen. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. You see, these these Judaizers had grown quite proud of their their spiritual perceived spiritual accomplishments and winning others to their cause. Convincing them they needed to keep these laws. Convincing them they need to be circumcised. Boasting that they had won these people. Won these people over. So in verse 6, it seems Paul is, is countering that, that fleshly pursuit of glorying in others with a self-abasing pursuit of actually honoring others. Honoring them by serving them serving them by by sharing in a very practical burden. Paul throws another example of Spirit-led living at us here in verse 6. One of sharing not just burdens, but sharing all good things, he says there. And interestingly enough, he singles out those who teach the Word. One who is taught the Word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Another way we demonstrate an an other's minded kind of life, uh, loving your neighbor as yourself, is by expressing an appreciation for them in real tangible ways. And this is a real practical way to bear another's burden. Paul doesn't explicitly say it, but he is alluding to monetary support here in verse 6. He's talking about the giving of material things or money. The reception of spiritual good returned with the giving of material good. That is, those who are taught the Word financially supporting those who are teaching them the Word. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians 9, we will see this more explicitly as Paul speaks about the subject uh, to the Corinthians. Even though in its context, Paul is explaining this and explaining he had the right to be supported by them, but didn't utilize that right amongst the Corinthians. And I think once you start to analyze the problems that were existing in Corinth... And the abundance of those problems, you understand why Paul did that. But, but here, in 1 Corinthians 9, he lays down the, the rationale and the, and the appropriateness of financially supporting gospel laborers or those who labor in the Word. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 3, "...this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas?" Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? does He not speak certainly for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope for, of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not weave in more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And He would be referenced in Jesus' statements there in Matthew ten ten. 10. But Paul, Paul likens preachers here to oxen. Not the most flattering illustration for those in ministry, but, but Paul would have us know that the, the whole law given in Deuteronomy 25.4 under Moses, the ultimate purpose for which that law was given was designed to highlight the point that Paul is now making in 1 Corinthians 9 here. That just as an it was right for an axe to eat from the grain that he was treading out, so it's right for those laboring for the spiritual good of others to receive material good from them. Paul references that very same verse in Deuteronomy twenty-five and his his first letter to Timothy he says this in first Timothy five, seventeen and eighteen, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul uses this ox illustration twice in his letters. But, but notice here in first Corinthians nine, verse eleven as Paul further develops his agricultural illustration into sowing and reaping, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? In advocating for the financial support of gospel laborers, Paul speaks in terms here of of sowing and reaping. Yes, denying himself that right at Corinth, as I said. However, he does share in his second letter to the Corinthians that he was being supported by the church at Philippi. Now, you don't need to turn there, but in that second letter, Paul Paul uses the same kind of language about financial giving in 2 Corinthians 9, saying this in verse 6, "...whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully." There, Paul is using this sow reap metaphor to express spiritual blessing being relative to material giving. You can turn back to Galatians. So, in light of Paul's usage of this metaphor connected to financial support in his other writings, it seems pretty clear that verse 6 is very much tied to verses 7 through 10. So translations like the NIV that remove verse six from the context of seven through ten seem very unwarranted to me. At the same time, it's not t- terribly difficult to, say, t- to see a connection to the previous paragraph of, of burden bearing. Right? And this is why I think the whole paragraph sh- shall be one paragraph. Financial needs are burdens that must be borne. Taking up financial needs of a gospel labor is a means of bearing their burden, sharing their load. And I would add, the financial support of those laboring in the Word should not be viewed as payment for service. But rather, it should be viewed as supporting one to be freed up to give more time to the task of laboring in the Word for the spiritual benefit of all. There is a a difference between those two mindsets, those two outlooks. In one sense, um, you know, the subject's awkward, but in another sense, it's not for me because I feel very, very well cared for here at MACE. Very much appreciate your support, and the, it, it would be awkward if that was not the case. <laughs> um, the ability to be freed up and to pour myself into the Word of God and into pastoral and other gospel labors, I'm, I'm very thankful to God for that. And throughout my 16 years here at Grace, this church has largely been one that has expressed her joy in the Lord Jesus Christ and love and commitment to Him, not just in words, but in sacrificial giving. And this has really largely been demonstrated by our continued commitment to the spread of Christ's glorious Gospel to the tune of 50% of our income going toward the support of missions, foreign missions. It's been pretty consistent throughout the years. We haven't always achieved it, but we—that is where we're we're at presently. I praise God for that. Thankful for that. I mean, that just speaks to those who are truly seeking first Christ's kingdom. I mean, the, the subject of giving, like it or not, it, it does reveal somebody's heart. It does. Jesus says, "For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." He said that in in the context of discussing possessions and money. Admonishing His people to lay up treasures for themselves in heaven. How does that happen? By investing in heavenly matters. By investing in that which advances His kingdom. By investing in that which glorifies Jesus Christ. And not earthly matters that perish. Perish. That, that really is a huge indicator of one's spiritual state. in the very least one's spiritual maturity. I feel like I'm getting an echo. Is that happening? Well, I, I, essentially, I was saying I mean how how we handle the money that God gives us, our, our stewardship of money really indicates our hearts before God. And um, really how much how much you have a grasp of the glory of the gospel, really? I mean, when you grasp God's generosity, mean, we're just doing the Lord's table. You, you grasp the generosity of God's love towards you. You, a fallen, wicked re- rebel who is, who's completely undeserving of the kindness and mercy that God has shown you. It, when you if that grips, the reality of that grips your soul, you know what you are, you know what you were, you know what, what you don't deserve and what God has bestowed upon you. When that becomes real, that makes a person generous. That translates into a generous life because God has poured such a blessing out upon me. I want to. I want to return it the same to others. And that really, brother, that really has no bearing on how much money you make. None whatsoever. It doesn't matter if you're making five bucks an hour or five thousand dollars an hour. It really doesn't. God knows the heart's expression. Listen, that woman that, that, poor, poor, that put in the two mites into that box, Jesus said it. She put more in than all these wealthy guys that are just dumping all their coins and letting everybody, you know, so everybody could see and turn their head. Oh, wow, look how rich they are. People who say they love Jesus Christ and yet they don't demonstrate it with their wallets, that's a contradiction. It, it is. Regardless of your wallet size, your wallet tells where your treasure truly is, where it lies. And I'm thankful we, there are some there are some sacrificial givers here. There are. And you know what? They are gaining far, far more than they're giving away. <laughs> far more. They're amassing exceeding great treasures that eternity will reveal to be so much more than the puny little treasures of this world, brethren. Jesus appeals to our greatest good when He's saying laying up treasures for heaven. He's not, he's not appealing to that which is going to be for your, for, for your worst. That's for sure. But what about you? Are you laying up treasure for heaven? Does your wallet reveal that Christ is your treasure? That His kingdom is number one? Are you one of the sacrificial givers here? Or are you just along for the ride? You don't want to overlook this matter in your life because the Lord doesn't. He doesn't. You, Jesus was very straightforward. You cannot serve God and money. Can't happen. Jesus is very straightforward about that. And if you're not regularly giving to the sport of Christ's kingdom, frankly, that resembles more Judas than Jesus. But let me also say regarding verse 6, this statement implies that those laboring in the Word are doing just that. They're not caught up with a hundred other things that they could be occupying their time with. Yes, there are other responsibilities to tend to, but those designated to labor in the word must be doing just that—laboring in the word. As much as Paul says there are those, those must share those who are being taught. They must share. I think I could be faithful to Scripture and equally stressing that those who teach must study and must know God's word and must spend an adequate amount of time in it to rightly divide it for the spiritual benefit of the body at large. Paul's letters to Timothy alone make that abundantly clear. And and there's so much more that could be be said on this verse, but clearly supporting those committed to labor for the spiritual good of the church is is another example of burden bearing that Paul gives us here. Another example of what it means to be others-minded, to live Spirit-led lives, to, to love your neighbor as yourself. Beyond that, we really don't know what specifics may have led Paul to state this in the church there. Perhaps, on the heels of verse 4 and 5, stressing the importance of individual responsibility on how each one's to bear their own load that is, give an account for their own life and their conduct before God. Perhaps Paul is countering an overreaction to personal responsibility to the neglect of others. Particularly those laboring for their spiritual good, in other words, a kind of an attitude like i've got my own problems, you deal with your own i've got my own mouths to feed, so all my money's going to be funneled into my family and and me, and you know justifying a lack of burden bearing in financially supporting those laboring for their spiritual good. Some have thought here that due to the influence of the false teachers, those false teachers were either pilfering. The financial support, or they were causing the church to altogether just neglect the true and faithful teachers in those churches. Either way, Paul issues this imperative, this command here for the church body to obey. The one who has taught the word must share all good things. And I think Paul's use of the, the phrase all good things deserves attention, even though he's alluding to financial support we see that parallel in his Corinthian letters. It seems to me he uses this wide open inclusive statement to speak of the generous nature of what a spirit-led life leads to. Walking by the spirit, brethren, walking by the spirit does not lead one to live a life like Ebenezer Scrooge. It doesn't. Gripped with selfish ambition and greed and looking to gain and hoard and stockpile and uh, listen, the spirit is giving Spirit gives. He gives life. He gives gives joy. He gives grace. He gives power. He gives wisdom. He gives peace. He's a giver. The Spirit of God is is an extremely generous being. So Spirit-led people are going to be generous people. And they're looking for ways to be generous. They're not looking for ways to heap up stuff for themselves that's going to perish. They're not tight-fisted individuals. They're looking at how they can share in the bearing of others' burdens. Gospel grace produces that kind of gratitude, that kind of generosity. I would just say as a whole, that the New Testament views the health of one's spiritual state through the lens of their generosity. Through the lens of, of giving themselves to and for the good of other people. So let me ask, What kind of giving is the Spirit of God producing through you in your life as a Christian? Like I said, this is a great indicator. It's a great indicator whether or not we're walking by the Spirit, right? If the Spirit is is the most generous being and He dwells in us and we're walking with Him, there ought to be an expression of generosity in our life. You see, this is this is where modern Christianity really misses the mark at large. Our culture is just so saturated in you. You're number one. You do you. You're the most important person in the whole wide world. Keep telling yourself that. Keep convincing you. Look look at the mirror. Clap yourself. You know, and pat yourself on the back. Pamper yourself. Self-absorption. And such indoctrination has bled its way into the doors of the church. And and what does that look like? Well, it looks like, what can the church do for me? What can the church do for me? It's all about getting for me and making sure my personal preferences are met. Church life exposes the reality of this get versus giving mentality. It really does. Far too many people out getting rather than giving. This it's a serious problem with modern day Christianity, particularly here in the states, where we've fostered such an entitled attitude of ingratitude. God help us! And, and, and frankly, some have not appreciated me mentioning it, which only serves to underscore the problem, brethren. It, it does. To the depth, people. to the depth that this thing has so permeated our culture and our minds. I know I got to fight it, and brethren. It's not biblical. It's anti Christ. What's Jesus say? What's the first thing he says? Except a person deny himself, not pamper himself. Die to self. That's the daily responsibility of a Christian. This consumer-friendly, self-serving state of mind that treats the church like it's some entity to fulfill my own personal needs rather than the church being an entity that provides me the opportunity of living out my life and serving and giving out of gratitude for what my glorious Savior Jesus Christ has done for me, for my never-dying soul and allowing me to come into His family. The, The Gospel has a hold of you. That's what it produces. Brother, that, that reality alone should be enough juice for you to go out and serve it until the day you drop dead. It really should be. If you see it rightly. If, if you truly grasp how, how utterly unworthy you are to be a partaker of eternal life and, and having escaped a rotting, burning hell that you 100% truly deserve, you, you do. It's got to be more than a doctoral thing we check off. Why on earth would I spend my life sharing all good things? Because I've been given all good things. I, I'm, I have Christ. I'm His. He's mine. And when you have everything, boy, it ought to change and impact your life, right? When your eyes have been ho- opened to behold this, what God has made you, knowing what you were, what He's brought you into, it should radically impact how you view Christ and His church and your commitment to both. Notice Paul's very next words, verse 7: Do not be deceived. If the Spirit of God is not producing this kind of living in your life, listen: do not be deceived. The kind of living of verses 1 through 6, the kind of living that seeks to restore falling brethren, re- help recover them from their sin, the kind of living that seeks to do the dirty work of getting up underneath other people's burdens, whether, whatever that burden is, whether it's the burden of some financial load or, or some physical load or some mental load or relational load or emotional load. And yes, Paul is you know, directly addressing the support of Gospel labors, but clearly other New Testament passages, including what's expressed there in verse 10 here, would be inclusive of all people. Sharing all good things with all manner of people. Again, all, all good things extends beyond mere money. In fact, some of the greatest blessings that I've received and, and been, been made a partaker of from this church have not come in the form of money but in the form of thoughtful, heart-revealing gifts and acts of kindness. Good things. Good things to me because of the good things it says about the giver. But back to the point here, if your life is void of these, do not be deceived. That's what Paul's saying here. You're not what you say you are. This is a warning, and one that we should all take very seriously. I know we get all manner of people that come here and through these doors, and some off the streets, and some visiting temporarily, visiting family on vacation. You got some young servicemen here, thankful for God bringing such people. And you know, faces come and go, and some stay, and some don't. Some don't like what they hear, and so I, I don't know some of you. I don't, I don't know where you come from. I don't know. I don't know your heart, but God does. And the Lord knows it's difficult to come to these passages. I I don't want you leaving here deceived. And I know there's a very strong likelihood that some of you will. Listen, if you call yourself a Christian, you have been, the Bible says you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you're no longer yours. You're His. And what that means is your life is surrendered to Him willfully, gladly, to His lordship. You bow down to Him, you gladly receive His will in your life, and you're, you're, you're walking in purposed obedience to Him. You see, this gospel, if we say we've embraced this gospel, it must needs find expression in our lives and how we live. We, we can't just be those that show up here on Sunday and leave, and, and that's our Christianity. That's our contribution to this church and to this perishing world around us. Listen, this world is full of weekend warriors, Christians. Christians. Those that just show up to the Sunday service, hear the sermon, and psh, off they go. Oh yeah, there's some that even you know they might hear sermons throughout the week, and that's pretty common nowadays. When we we love to taste sermons, as my brother Brian says, that sermon tasting is not going to bring anyone transformation. And we live in a we live in a day and a time and a land. where There's lots of sermon tasting. You go to a sermon audio. You can go to YouTube. You can go to ministry websites. We don't lack access to messages. We don't lack access to truth or to information. We can go on sermon tasting binges and great delight. We can compare preaching and preachers, and and we can it's just like we're tasting wine and whatever suits our palate, and and yet. A, Listen, if it doesn't impact your life, it does if it doesn't produce a Christ-infused gospel gratitude and generosity, it, it produce a a life of Romans 12.1, a living sacrifice for the cause of Jesus Christ. If it doesn't produce that, what good is any of it? It's it's nothing more than just tasteless salt just throw it out and have it trampled under by by foot of other people. Hearing only. You know what? Hearing only is not just a new thing. it has been a problem long, long before the Internet. What does James tell us in James one twenty one? Put away all filthiness and wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. But, but, he says, be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Not connoisseurs only. Deceiving yourselves, James says. The very same thing Paul says here. James has the same concern that Paul does here. People being deceived because they hear the truth, they know the truth, they talk the truth, and yet their life speaks something completely contrary to that truth. And so Paul issues this foolproof, agricultural illustration as a warning in verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will He also reap." Paul is taking a very simple, well-known physical concept and turning it into a spiritual illustration. In fact, the physical actually exists for the sake of Conveying the spiritual. Paul Paul draws a spiritual parallel here between the farmer and the Christian. It's, ve- it's very simple. It's very basic. I mean, this is there's no complexity here in this illustration. It's very straightforward. You reap what you sell. Now, this is not a how to how to get rich illustration. The one who reaps eternity sows eternal things, including their wallets. And yes, yes, this is where the devil has sown so craftily, so masterfully, by taking a warning about being deceived and deceiving people with it, turning the warning into a promise for prosperity. Amazing. Amazing. And I realize some could be sitting here, and you and you hear what I'm saying. You might it might sound to you like, "What, what is this? Some Kenneth Copeland campaign?" Or especially if that's your background. Here's another preacher talking about money, you know, seeking to convince, convince people. Just you know, if you just sow enough money to line my pockets and fill my pockets, you're going to reap all kinds of health and wealth and all kinds of all these other blessings. Sadly. That is all too common. Listen, I understand there's twisters of truth. And I see how the devil has so successfully saturated Christianity at large with word of faith, shysters, and greed mongers taking advantage of people by emptying the, with empty promises built upon the twisting of Scripture in an effort to just build their own kingdom and, and empire of wealth. Sadly, there's far too many of those men. And how Satan has so successfully accomplished, not just causing people to be deceived, but also causing true genuine Christians to question and doubt and be, and be suspect about a very, a very biblical spiritual axiom or truism or principle, you actually do reap what you sow. Y- you do. If you're, inve- if you're investing in that which perishes that's what you're going to reap. This sowing and reaping principle does remain true, brethren. Regardless of false, greedy prophets using such realities to fleece the people of God and drain their bank accounts, regardless of that, Scripture does promise that if we faithfully utilize our material goods for spiritual purposes, it will yield spiritual good for you. It will. And yes, that can also result in physical prosperity. I'm not afraid to say that. However, that is not the primary reaping Scripture sets forth. It's spiritual. It may be that someone gives to such an extreme sacrificial level, maybe even here, that they never become a person of great means of wealth. And yet I can guarantee you they will not be impoverished in the spiritual level. Not at all. Not what. Not one iota whatsoever. They will be rich toward God and filled with His blessing both in this life and in the life to come. They will reap abundantly. That's the promise here. Oh, brethren, don't let the devil... Please, don't let the devil and his lies become a means of robbing you from entering into the blessings that are there for the children of God and giving. Listen, men do what they do. And men, they're wicked in their selfish ways and their schemes, but God only calls His people to do and to be what He is purposing to bless. And the Lord is very much interested in your field of being abundantly fruitful, abundantly filled with fruit. And that happens through giving. After all, it is Jesus Christ who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said that, not T.D. Jakes. Listen, I'm thankful. I am very thankful I can give. I want to I, I give. And I want to give more. Why? Because I believe what Jesus says. Freely you have received. Freely give. You see, it's not, it's not just a spiritual responsibility. It certainly is that. But, it, but it's a reactionary response to the Gospel. Listen, the times is that Christ has been most precious to my soul and the Gospel has been more real to me, I'm ready to, to pour myself out and give in, every way, in any way that I can. I'm not over there stacking coins and like, oh, I'm going to save this up and... For what? Something greater than Christ in the Gospel? You show me someone who's not generous. And I'll show you someone that hasn't seen the Gospel clearly. You see your Savior on that tree bearing your sin load. A tree that He created. Nailed to it. By men that He created. Whose lungs and blood and heart are pumping as they drive them into Him. He's sustaining their life as they're killing Him. There He is freely bearing, freely giving, the author of life giving His life for Me. We read that... Matthew read that, that psalm. Steadfast love surrounds those who trust the Lord. Oh, what love! What an outpouring of love! We sang it. The reign of sin and death is o'er, and all may live from sin set free. Satan hath lost his mortal power to swallow up in victory. Save from the legal curse I am, my Savior hangs on yonder tree. See there the meek expiring Lamb. Tis finish, He expires. For me. And if that doesn't make you generous, nothing will. Sowing is just another term for planting. Reaping, another term for harvesting. The point is this very simple, like I said, you plant corn, and corn is what you'll harvest. You plant corn, you don't get beets. Nor do you get onions. Never. It, you'll never get that. Every single time you plant corn, you will get corn. I, I just, I absolutely love how the Bible, it's like Prince was saying earlier, it's just, it's just very down to earth, simple, real, practical. Pulling illustrations from our created world, life observations that, that provide consistent, reliable, unquestionable activity or results that, that no one can deny. Who's gonna go out and say, and see a cornfield and say, there's no way it's gonna be corn. There's gonna be alfalfa, I'm, I guarantee it. No, everybody who walks by and sees the farmer planting corn is, is convinced it's gonna be corn. Because that's what happens. Every single time. It's undeniable. You reap what you sow. What other truth do we learn from reaping and sowing? That the output is relative to the input. Right? In other words, if I sow just a little bit amount here, I'm going to harvest a little bit. However, if I harvest a large amount, or if I sow a large amount, I'm going to harvest a large amount. If I plant just a little bit of corn, my corn harvest is going to be small. If I plant large amounts of corn, my harvest is going to be very large. I'm going to get a lot of corn. Kids are going to be eating a lot of corn on the cob. That's the basic reality. God would have us know, at least at this point, the spiritual world works very much the same as the physical world. And as this is applied to spiritual reality, this simple agricultural example is preceded with this warning here. Do not be deceived. Don't don't be deceived in thinking that this principle of reaping what you sow is not upheld in the spiritual realm. It most certainly is. You plant sin and you will get corruption. You don't sow sinful living and reap eternal life. It doesn't happen. It never will. You're deceived if you think that's the case. And God would have you not be deceived. Don't believe false ideas of Christianity no matter how prevalent, no matter how accepted they are, no matter how much they might appeal to your flesh. Just don't buy into just simply believing facts about the Gospel that Jesus died for guilty sinners. And so long as I believe that, it doesn't really make a difference how I live my life. It's just irrelevant how I live my life as long as I believe these facts about Jesus. To venture into that to venture into eternity with that notion that Jesus loves me and He died for me and that that, that that right there just trumps all other spiritual realities connected to my life and the way I live, that is deception. That's foolishness. That's utter spiritual nonsense. Many, I'm telling you, many people will perish under this deceptive thinking that God's grace and love will somehow override and ignore the kind of life I live. You you won't find that one place in the Bible. It won't support that notion. Rather, what you're going to find is warnings like this. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. You, You do not end up with the fruit of righteousness when you plant the seeds of unrighteousness. You get righteousness when you plant righteousness. You, you sow to the Spirit the things of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, these, these fruits of life. You plant fruits of life, you end up reaping eternal life. And I'm not preaching a works righteousness. I'm preaching what the Bible teaches. You don't. Reap eternal life when your field is full of seed, the seeds of sin and flesh. You end up with corruption and death. That's what you'll reap. Do not be deceived. This this letter is so filled with warnings. I mean, way back in chapter one, Paul starts off with these anathemas. And oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Essentially, who has deceived you? Chapter three, chapter five, verse four. You're severed from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. How is that? Paul preaches a grace that can be fallen away from. He does. Throw that wrench into your systematic theology. Chapter 5, verse 21. I warn. I warn you as I warned you before. Chapter 6, verse 3 if you think yourself to be something, you're deceived. I mean, Paul just relentless with the warnings. You sow the seeds of greed. Proverbs 15.27 tells us you will reap the ruin of your own household. Eliaphaz tells Job Job 4.8, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble will reap the same. But you see, the one who sows generously is going to reap generously. And this is an unshakable principle of life. And one that even a child can easily understand, right? You reap what you sow. The principle is easily understood, but not so easily lived by. See? Like so much of sin's impact on the human race, we, we don't act according to what's logically sound. We in our fallen state of being choose what is destructive to us. Not because we actually think it really is, but because we actually are deluded to think it's not. At least, you know, not for me. There was a study done by a psychologist 10, 10 years ago. It was a study that revealed everyone thinks they're above average. Of course, that's impossible, right? The article says this, on a scale of 1 to 10, you probably think you're a 7 and you wouldn't be alone. While it's impossible for most people to be average for a specific quality, people think they're better than most people in many areas, from charitable behavior to work performance. The phenomenon known as illusory superiority is so stubbornly persistent that psychologists would be surprised if it didn't show up in their studies, said David Dunning, a psychologist at Cornell who has studied the effect for decades. This is a lost guy. Since psychological studies first began, people have given themselves top marks for the most positive traits. While most people do well at assessing others, they are wildly positive about their own abilities, Dunning said. That's because we realize the external traits and circumstances that guide other people's actions, but when it comes to us, we think it's all about our intention, our effort, our desire, our agency. We think we sort of float above all these kinds of constraints, he said. In in a classic study in 1977, 94% of professors were reviewed. They were polled. And they rated themselves above average relative to their peers. 94% of them. (laughs) See, as fallen creatures, we truly do live under the impression of verse 3. We really do hold ourselves in high esteem. Oh, think the world of ourselves. But you see, this principle remains. God will not be mocked. And the reason He will not be mocked is because as sure as the agricultural metaphor is sure, it's true, there is a day of reckoning coming. Where every man's work will be tried and every field will be thoroughly, absolutely thoroughly inspected up and down and all around. Every square inch of your field will be inspected by the great heavenly harvest inspector himself. The harvest of your life and how you lived it will be laid out at the judgment seat of Christ. You go read it. Read Revelation. What's the basis of your judgment in Revelation? Make no mistake about it. You will reap on that day what you've sown here on earth. Do not be deceived." Those five men, they entered that submersible vessel called the Titan at 8 a.m. a week ago today. Their goal was to journey to the bottom of the ocean. That ocean floor where there There lies the wreckage of the Titanic to this day. And they entered that vessel fully confident of its integrity and its ability to safely lead them down to the Titanic and return them to the top. This was despite the fact the vessel had never been certified. This is despite the fact the engineers were warning the inventor that he was flirting with disaster because the composite material in which the housing was made of did, does not have near the, near the consistent properties that steel does and it would not hold up, likely hold up under the immense pressures of deep sea." The warnings went unheeded. They thought they were okay. They left confident of their future. Because after all, it made the journey before. So what's the danger? The warnings just seem invalid. I mean, they're just a bunch of voices of people that wanted to spoil their fun. They didn't take heed. They were deceived. But you see, they didn't find out until they died. They sadly serve as a parable of this most prominent reality with the human race. Overconfident and presumptuous, and because so, deceived. We are creatures that are easily deceived. Especially when truth stands in the way of what we want. Oh, We're masters. And we'll either seek to redefine the truth, or we'll think of some somehow, in some way, we think we're an exception. We think we can bend the facts and avoid the disaster. We just know better. We think we'll find the righteous fruit in the field of our spiritual life despite spending years of sowing unrighteousness. That's not how God's economy works. Don't mock Him. Don't buy into the lie that you can somehow live whatever way you want, whenever you want, however you want, without eternal consequences. To believe such is to be deceived. That is as impossible in the spiritual realm as it is impossible in the the agricultural realm. In fact, to suggest such would be to mock God. And God will not be mocked. His spiritual farming principle will be upheld. That's why He's given it to us. That's why Paul tells us don't be deceived. Here's how you don't be deceived. Realize this, whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Bank on it. Count on it. Don't, don't think it's not going to happen because it is for every single person. All sowers will, reap what they, sowers will reap what they sow. It's a serious warning here. But it's also a serious blessing, brethren. And I trust we'll see the magnitude of that contrast as we, as we further develop this in the, next, in the next message. And I will address any kind of accusation of works righteousness. Explain further why, how this measures up with justification. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank You for warnings. Think of that at Him. Thank You for the grace that alarmed my soul. Lord, thank You for peeling back and revealing our own deception. Lord, I was deceived. And I would still be today were it not for You. And I thank You for that grace. Lord, I pray You'd have pity on some here today that sit in deception. Lord, I pray that Your truth would be used to awaken them. I, Lord, truth is, without Christ, we're all headed to a catastrophic implosion of ourselves. Oh, would You come in great mercy and have pity on sinners. I pray in Jesus' name, Amen.